This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. understanding hearts and we ask for competence to teach accurately let your name be glorified let us be more effective as Christians let us see a renewal of the days of your glory as from as it was at the beginning in the name of Jesus cause us to be grounded in your wisdom and grounded in your power also Cause us to be grounded in your wisdom and grounded in your power also. In the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. I actually wanted to pray for people. I also wanted to hear what, what this teacher wanted to write. All right, no problem. You can sit. Praise God. Right, so today we are going to be talking about tongues. Into that, we touch, we're talking on charismatics for how many weeks now? Yeah, four or five weeks is right. So, today we're talking about tongues, and um, you see, the, top, the topic of the subject of tongues is actually very critical, it's very important, and it's a central theme of charismatics. It's a central theme of charismatics, it is one thing that must be understood properly. It is that thing that gives people that don't, you know, people that are non-charismatic, people that are non-Pentecostals, it gives them the goosebumps. They don't like it, right? They don't, it looks creepy, one kind. And um, those that are charismatic, it is the one thing that we relish that makes us special. It is important to note that of all the things that, you know, all the charismatic gifts that, are available. Tongues is the only one that we do not see practiced until Jesus rose again. Why that is, I'm not sure. Why that is so, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. To be honest, maybe someday God will give me revelation on why. But um, for some reason, speaking with tongues, also called glossolalia, G-L-O-S-S-A-L-I-A. For some reason, glossolalia is the only thing that we see happening after the Holy Spirit was given. Every other thing, raising the dead, prophesying, casting out demons, everything. We hear it, we see it done. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, doing miracles, even the non-spectacular gift, like gift of administration, you know, gift of generosity, all those things. We saw it, we saw the Holy Spirit doing diverse things in people, you know, throughout the old and through Jesus before he died and rose again. But speaking in tongues for some reason is the only thing that started after. And that's why speaking in tongues is something that must be understood properly. 
because of how sensitive this message is, I don't want to break it and then have to come back next week and I'll find myself recapping everything I've said so that it can make sense. So I want to trust God that God will help me to see everything I want to see together now such that if at all I have to talk about it again next week, what will happen is that it will now be more like a recap and an expatiation on what, you know, what I've said today. Praise God. So I want to try and see everything together now once and for all. Praise the Lord. Now, the first thing I'm going to do is to look at the scriptures and to first of all describe, you know I told you that today is going to be, it's going to be good. You guys are going to enjoy it today. You're going to enjoy this service. And I need to pay attention very well. The first thing I'm going to do is to make sure that I describe what speaking in tongues is properly from the scriptures. Exactly what it is. We need to understand exactly what speaking in tongues is. When we are done with that, we will now look a bit into... You see, these speaking in tongues things that they've, they, they make charismatics look like one stupid, pure, um, ecstatic, emotionalistic thing that we always do that does not make sense, that we're just doing to deceive ourselves. It's not so. <laughs> it's not so. <laughs> mm. I'm drawing a lot from the work of um, Dr. K.S. Smith. He, he wrote a book called Think, Think, Thinking in Tongues. And I did a, lot, a little bit of study also into some philosophy of language, um, the works of um, Husserl and um, Cyril, praise God. And so we're going, to look at, we're going to look at the philosophy of language, what scholars have said about what language is. We'll look at the core tenets of it, of what scholars, philosophers have told us language is, what is the purpose of language. And then you will see that tongues is not only something powerful, not, not obviously we know it's powerful as Pentecostals and Charismatics, right? But it's actually something very rational. It is something philosophically sound. And it's not something that when we are talking to non-Pentecostals, we should be shy of that, you know, that spooky thing. Especially when you are praying for people and you're like, um, speak in tongues, and then it's like, um, I'm just saying nonsense. I don't even know what I'm saying. You see, there is this feeling that even we have that when we are speaking in tongues, we are speaking gibberish. And there is this certain low self-esteem with regards to tongues where we look at it as it's one of our things that God gave us. We don't fully understand it, but we just take it as one of our things. Praise God. It's actually not so. Tongues is actually something solid, something deep, something philosophically dependable. And I'm actually surprised that if not because of the work of, you know, um, Dr. K.M. K.S. Smith, um, he, did, he did some work, but even though his work was not, his analysis was not supposed to be deep and all that, I'm actually surprised that in our 120 years of Pentecostalism, we have not had any philosophers that have actually taken this thing. It's just that I don't have training in philosophy, so I can't do this work. But I hope that someone is listening to me who is more academically inclined, is going to go the, of, go the, the line of theology and Christian philosophy, who will be able to take what I'm going to say today, you know, and expantiate it and make a mighty edifice out of it. You know, my whole point is that this thing is actually some good stuff. Praise God. So let's, let's, let's first of all have an overview. Let's, let's do an overview of what speaking in tongues is. And then we'll look at, we'll look at the philosophy of language, look at some coordinates of philosophy of language, and bring it together to see how that Paul said so many things in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that we do not understand. You see what I'm saying. Praise God. Acts chapter 2, the first account of people having glossolalia. There are some things that need to be clearly understood from this scripture that will help everybody. Acts chapter 2 from verse 1, when the day of Pentecost fully came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So they were the ones that were seeing it, not outsiders. Do you understand that? It's important you understand that. They saw something physically. So it's like as if they that were in that meeting were seeing visions of things happening on top of each other. So it's like we're in this meeting now, and then I see an angel beside Daniel. I'm the one seeing it. An outsider walking in here might not see it. Praise God. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And there's a very, very important question for us to understand from the get-go. The first important question that we need to understand in the get-go. What is speaking in tongues? What is glossolalia? Now listen, there are two definitions of the um, glossolalia just means to um, speak in tongues, speak in strange tongues that people don't understand. But glossolalia is divided into two, according to you know, Christian philosophers. There are two types of glossolalia. There is xenolalia, that is X-E-N-O-L-A-L-I-A, xenolalia, and then there is glossolalia proper. Both of them are types of glossolalia, but that glossolalia proper means something else. So there is xenolalia, and xenolalia means to speak in a strange language that you were never, that you have never learned. Xenolalia is to speak in a strange language that you have never learned. Glossolalia means to speak is um, utterances that you communicate at um, during the ecstasy of a spiritual encounter. Do you understand that? So you call them ecstatic utterances. So glossolalia, the general word, means ecstatic, ecstatic um, utterances. Now, when you're having an ecstatic utterance, that ecstatic utterance can either be a language, can either be, for lack of a better word, gibberish, that is just you creating sounds with your mouth that do not necessarily follow any grammatical or semantic structure in any language ever. But it's just ecstatic, you know, pronunciations. Or it can be xenolalia. And xenolalia is that you're actually speaking a language, a language that actually conforms to some languages, semantics, and, um, you know, grammar, grammatical structure, and all that. Do you understand that? It's important you understand this. For example, if someone is speaking uh, koza in this place, is it soza or whatever that they call it, in this place, and you've never heard koza before, you think the person is saying nonsense. Imagine someone is speaking in tongues, and the person is speaking koza, you actually be, it will actually be weird, because even the tongues that we speak most of the times seem to be like words. This one, if you hear the person clicking, is this one tongues too? It is a language. Now, let's go on. Verse 5. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every country under heaven. God-fearing Jews from every country under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, each one heard their own language. It's important for you to understand this. Judaism, Jews, being a Jew, Judaism does not have a language. This is one common problem that people don't understand. In, they don't understand the context of this time. Judaism does not have a language. As at the time that Peter was speaking, he was speaking Aramaic. Aramaic is a fusion of ancient Hebrew and 
um, um, Syrian languages that they had at the time, Samaritan languages, that now became what we call Aramaic. It wasn't even the language that their forefathers were speaking, that they used to write the old land, the prophets. Do you know what I just said? The language that Peter was speaking here was not even the language that the Old Testament was written in. It wasn't written in that Hebrew. In fact, even this Aramaic that was being spoken was even lost. The Hebrew that is being spoken today, it was a professor, I've forgotten his name, in 1940s, that reconstructed ancient Hebrew so that the Jews can be speaking it today. It's important that you understand this. So, in 597, around between 597 and 5, um, 538, no, praise God, no, between 734, sorry, between 734 and 732, there was the northern and the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdoms were the ones that split with Jeroboam and then the lower ones, the Rehoboam. There were two southern kingdoms, right? Are we together? Then there were ten northern kingdoms. The ten northern kingdoms became the northern kingdoms under Jeroboam and everything. And they were the ones called Israel. Then the southern kingdoms are the ones that were called Judah. That's Benjamin and Judah. They became called Judah. The first ones, um, under an Assyrian king, they were carted away. So the Assyrians came and began to pack them and to exile them. They began to deport them. It's not, it doesn't count as deportation. It's more like exile. They began to exile them back into the Assyrian Empire, such that it was, it was gradual and over time. So they began to exile them from like 734 BC up onto 724. So Sargon II came and finished the work and packed the entire northern kingdom. So there were no kingdom. There was no kingdom again. So what was left there were well, people began to occupy all those places, and that land became what we get, what we now be, later became Samaria. That the guys in the lower kingdom did not consider to be Jews or to be real people. They thought of them as dogs. So that was, that's what became Samaria. Those people became the lost tribes of Israel. They scattered them through the Assyrian Empire, just as the prophet had predicted. They scattered them completely. Then the lower kingdom, so Assyria as a power, it died. And one of the countries that it was controlling was called Babylon. So Babylon, one of the countries that it was controlling, now rose up and conquered the Assyrians and now became, now took over the entire empire that the Assyrians were controlling. Those Babylonians now went to Judah under the time of Hezekiah to, you know, that was what the Assyrians did. It was not Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the one that was preserved. The story is actually amazingly congruent and together. So it was later, it was under um, Daniel. Who was the king when Daniel was king? That's... Um, um, forgot. Eh? No, I mean the king of Judah when they packed Daniel as a child. I've forgotten his name. Guys, forgive me. You can just check it up. So, Babylon came to pack Judah away into exile in Babylon. But Daniel, when he grew up, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah already told them that um, they will come, Babylon will come and take them long before Babylon even conquered Assyria and that they will take them. But after 70 years, they will come back. And guess what? Actually, According to the word of the Lord. 70 years later, so they packed them around 797. And by 538, around 70 years, they began to come back to Babylon. So Zerubbabel was the first person to begin to bring them back to Babylon. Zerubbabel was the one that led them first in 724 back to Babylon. So I want you to get the picture. So, so, and the people that came back with Zerubbabel were a minority. It was not everybody. It was just a few people. There were so few that the kingdoms around them could have killed them. So if you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, you have a picture of what it was like. Right? So a few people came back to Jerusalem. Those people that came back to Jerusalem are the ones that began to rebuild the, the Jewish civilization. Obviously, when they came back, 
the the language the when they came back they came back with the languages of the different countries that they were you know that they were from one number two the majority of people of Jews that withheld that held on to their identity were still scattered around the Middle East and the Mediterranean all around the Middle East and the Mediterranean Jews were scattered all over those places many of them still held on to their identity but they were marrying those people just like Jeremiah prophesied you remember what Jeremiah prophesied to them. He says, marry them, build the countries where you are. The, 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 the goodness of the country, the peace of the country where you are will be your peace. So marry them. It was God that told them, marry them, your, their children, buy lands among them, build houses with their build infrastructure. So that's why Jews now began to stop secluding themselves. They began to build themselves in those countries where they were. So they were now members of those countries. So they were now from those countries. So it's just like um, Ben Shapiro now in America. He does not speak ancient Jewish. He's an American, but he's a Jew. Do you understand that? That's the way Judaism now became. People, they, that's why they call some people Hellenists. They were Greeks, they were Jews, but they were Greek speaking. Do you understand that? A Hellenist is a, 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 a Hellenist Jew is a Greek, is a Jew that speaks Greek because he was raised and born among the Greek city-states. So, follow the story now. Verse 5 now says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God, so they came home for Pentecost, right? They came home for the festival of um, the Passover. Are we together? What happens after Passover? What's the celebration after Passover? That's what they came for. Do you understand? The feast of um, something. Um, guys, I'm sorry I'm glitching. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God free from every nation at the heaven. And when they heard this sound, the crowd came together and behold them it. Because each one, so now this is, we're talking about um, 30 AD. This is roughly around 30 AD. So we're saying that these people and their ancestors have been in those lands for about close to 800 years. You know what 800 years is? 800 years is, is 800 years from now, or 800 years before now, is um, the 1200s and the 1300s. So people that their ancestors have been in Persia, Elam, they have been Elamites, Parthians, and Mesopotamians for over 800 years. So it's not as if there were people that were Jews that are going to do business. They were born, they've been in those countries for 800 years. But they come to, um, to, Israel, um, to Jerusalem for the festivals, for Elia, just like people go to Saudi Arabia for Mecca. Then they go back home for this festival. Do you understand that context? The historical context is extremely important. It makes the entire story to have meaning and color, and it to be coherent when you are reading it. When they heard the sound, verse 6, a crowd came together in bewilderment. So, look at their response. They were bewildered. They were shocked. Verse 7 says they were utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each one of us Hears them in our native language. If they were all speaking the same language, there's nothing to be bewildered about. There's nothing to be utterly amazed about. These are people that their ancestors have been in the Middle East and all those countries for 800 years. They were not speaking Aramaic. They were speaking the language that their fathers have been speaking in those countries for long. So they came to a place and they noticed, because imagine we are the guys from Midis and Parthia and we are Elamites and some of us are from Mesopotamia and we are coming home for Ilea 
and we have our own language, so there's levels. Then you people that are in Jerusalem, and now we know you people because we know your accents, we know you guys, you know the way it is now. We know ourselves, even the way we dress will be different. The way we look will be different. Do you understand that? You now come and now see some people that you know are not from your hometown speaking your language. So, then I said, how, do we, how is it, how, and then how is it that each one of us hears them in our native language? Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and part of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Do you see that? If, an, if a Yoruba man converts to Judaism, what is his native tongue? It's simple. Cretans and what? Arabs. They didn't call them Arab speaking. He called them Arab Jews. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? But see the second reaction. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Now, this is the first thing that I want to clear from the beginning. Speaking in tongues is as far as we are concerned from the scriptures, we'll go on and we'll see it. Glossolalia is xenolalia. Speaking in tongues is speaking another language. As we go on, you understand better. Speaking in tongue is speaking um, another language. When a person is speaking a language that you don't understand, to you, it is what? Glossolalia. That means it is just ecstatic utterances. Are you with me? If someone is speaking a language under the influence of the Spirit and you don't understand that language, to you, that language is what? Glossolalia. But when you understand the language, either naturally or supernaturally, when you understand the language, either naturally or supernaturally, that means... Naturally, you can understand the language because it is language you were born in. Or supernaturally, God will give you the ability to interpret what the person is saying. To you, that language is what? Xenolalia. Do you understand what I just said now? What that means is that when a person is speaking ecstatically, you, until proven otherwise, you cannot say what the person is saying is gibberish. You can't you would have to understand every language that has ever been spoken. Or every language that can be spoken. Because you know you can create languages. Gerald Tolkien created like 17 languages or something. The guy that wrote Lord of the Rings. Something like that. Is it 17 or 13? As in he created. Not just what I just said. So when a person is speaking ecstatically, under the spirits, and the person saying, Mabre, Kalos, Torodish, Tesevidi, Alabaradis, Tarabadus, Tosofarkanos. You cannot say the person is speaking gibberish. And you yourself that are speaking it, you should not have low self esteem to tell yourself that what you are saying is nonsense. Because what you are uttering means something. It is because 
The people listening to you cannot naturally or supernaturally interpret what you are saying. Are you with me? Church, are we together? Church, are we together? Can you hear what I'm saying to you? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. From verse 1. Let's do an overview. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understand them, understands them. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries in the Spirit. Now, many people quote this first part of verse 2 out of context and say no one understands them. And use no one to mean absolutely no one. But that's not what the chapter even says. Because what the Bible tells us in this same chapter, by the, by the time you go to the end, is that when you speak in a tongue, somebody can interpret it. So, the person that interprets is it no one? Is it not a human being? So, what Paul is starting by explaining here, by saying no one, is that when you speak ecstatically under the influence of the Spirit, Except the people that are there understand the language or the people that are there are given supernatural ability to interpret the language, they will not understand what you are saying. Apostle Paul is making an emphasis on edification of the, of the body over edification of the self. Do you understand that? It's important to understand this. The lesson of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is not a despising of any gift of the Spirit. It is an emphasis of being selfless. It is an emphasis on blessing other people instead of focusing on blessing only yourself. Blessing other... When you are in the gathering of the saints, your focus should be to bless other people. That's why the preceding chapter before it is, an, is a treatise on walking in love. So love demands that you focus on blessing other people at the, you know, instead of blessing yourself. Church, out together. So, verse 2 again, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them, the utter mysteries, by the Spirit. Now, first thing that I want you to note from here, like, okay, the second thing, the first thing you should note is that no one is not absolutely no one. It just means people who cannot interpret what is being said. Do you understand that? I want you to note that too. That's one. Second note you have to make here, he says they utter mysteries. This is another misunderstanding that people have. He says they utter mysteries. That's why he now says no one understands them. That means that what they are saying is mystery. They are saying something people just don't understand. Do you understand that? It is what they are saying. It is their locution that is mysteries. This is important because I'm coming to philosophy of language. We, we don't understand Paul. We, we, as in we've been reading this message, we do not get. Paul was saying, hi. He says they utter. The utterance from their mouth is mystery. Because there's a, there's a feeling that when a person is speaking in tongues, it is what is inside of them that is mystery. That the mystery is something inside. But what they are saying is gibberish. Do you understand that? People think that ecstatic utterances, when you are saying, when you are communicating ecstatic utterances, 
that those ecstatic utterances you are communicating is gibberish. But there is a mess, the mystery is in the message in your spirit. So you are communicating gibberish, but your spirit is praying something meaningful. So what you are saying is gibberish, but the spirit is saying something meaningful. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that what you are saying is it has meaning, it's just that people don't understand it. It is mystery. Do you hear what I just said to you now? Hey, you need to understand this. So he says they utter. If you are under the spirit and you say, I'm going to sit down back later. Don't worry. Just leave it. If I say, that is mystery. You are saying something. It's just that people don't understand what you are saying. So when people are interpreting a tongue, they are not entering your spirit to hear what is behind the gibberish. The gibberish itself is what they are hearing and the Holy Spirit is interpreting. This is why when you are speaking in tongues, don't have low self-esteem and say what is coming out of my mouth is gibberish. It's people that don't understand. Anyway, you're not meant to be doing that in front of people anyway, according to Apostle Paul. But if you are speaking um, ecstatically under the influence of the Spirit, you're not supposed to feel like what is coming out of my mouth is meaningless. You yourself, you don't understand. It does not mean that what you are saying is gibberish. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because gibberish implies that those things you are saying are meaningless. That's why I was explaining to you that glossolalia, until proven otherwise, is xenolalia. It's not gibberish. It is not gibberish. You are saying something. What you are saying is a mystery. People just don't understand it. Church, are we together? Look at verse, um, verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comforting them. So by the gathering of the saints, right, um, you're supposed to focus on helping people, not focus on yourself. This is why. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Huh? But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. So even at this time, not everybody was speaking in tongues. You need to understand that basically. I know charismatics need to think that everybody in the early church was speaking in tongues and everything. So today, um, you know they use that. that. No. If we are going to tell everybody to speak in tongues, the evidence for it will not be telling a lie and saying everybody then was speaking in tongues. The evidence for it is something else. But even at this time, just as people are struggling speaking in tongues now, people were struggling speaking in tongues then. We read First Corinthians chapter like said, like we read earlier, not everybody spoke with tongues in the early church. Is that clear? I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be what? Edified. So when he says he speaks to no one, the no one is not absolutely no one. The no one is in the absence of a what? Interpreter. Context. Context. Context is important. He speaks to no one. Does not mean nobody understands. It means nobody there is an interpreter. Just like if, you, if Daniel goes to China today and speaks Yoruba there, no one will what? Understand. No one will understand. It does not mean no one can understand. So let's come again. 
no one understands is not the same as no one can understand. When we say no one understands, what people are reading into it is no one can understand. There are two different things. Church out together. Let's go on. You see some things now. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, ha, ah, Paul, Kai, follow. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? So, even lifeless things, when they make noise, when they make sounds, right? See, when they make sounds, when you are making the sounds, you need to make distinctions because a note is being paid. It does not mean that the instrument that is making the sound is not making a note. Do you understand that? It is your job to distinguish the notes so that the people that are hearing it can maximize it. It is not that what the instrument is playing should not be considered the notes. Do you see that? Let's go on. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Do you see that? Do you see that? You will be speaking into the air. You are not speaking gibberish. You are speaking to the air. Because nobody there can understand. If you look through the entire scripture, there is no single suggestion at any point in time that warrants the feeling that when you are speaking ecstatically, what you are saying is gibberish. No single example. What he says is that people there do not understand. Now, let's go on. Speaking to the air, what verse was that? Um, verse 9, thank you. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world. Look at this, so off me. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without what? Meaning. None of them is without what? Meaning. None of them is without what? Meaning. So why do we think that tongues is without meaning? He says there are all sorts, but none of them is without meaning. So your tongue has meaning. People just don't understand. And the meaning is not in the spirit. It is in the utterance. Let's go on. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying. Do you see that? If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying. I am a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So, what the person is saying has meaning. I just don't understand because I am a what? Foreigner. <laughs> so it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Church, are you getting what I'm saying to you? For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So they are saying something. They should pray that God should help them to interpret what they are what? Saying. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, 
but my mind is unfruitful. My mind being unfruitful is that I cannot interpret what is being said. But my spirit is praying. Now, this is where there's a lot of confusion that I need to clear out. When the Bible says that my spirit is praying, when, we, when Apostle Paul says that my spirit is praying, that I'm praying in the spirit, we often think, or at least let me speak for myself, let me not speak for you. Maybe you don't, you're not like me that you don't know better. I used to think that speaking in tongues equals praying in the spirit. That speaking in tongues means praying in the spirit. It was a few months ago that I began to realize that that's actually not true. Praying in the spirit is when a person in their consciousness is participating in the Holy Ghost to pray. With the Holy Ghost to pray. That means from their inside, from their spirit, they are praying. When a man is praying in the spirit, that praying in the spirit can have different kinds of locutionary manifestations. So, the manifestation of praying in the spirit sometimes is that the person will speak in tongues. Sometimes it can be that the person will speak in the understanding, with understanding of their own language. Sometimes it can, the person can even be silent. Let me off you. Sometimes it can be singing hymns. Sometimes it can actually be meditation where you be silent. Praying in the spirit is when a person in their spirit is participating in the Holy Ghost, in that faculty of the Holy Ghost inside of them. It is when their consciousness is participating with the Holy Ghost in praying to God. That is why saying that if you cannot speak in tongues, is, you are not praying in the Spirit, is self-evidently wrong. Does that mean someone that is deaf and dumb does not pray in the Spirit? Does that mean that the Christians who don't speak in tongues have never prayed in the Spirit? <laughs> Shall I off you? There is no record that Jesus spoke in tongues. That was shocking to me. But Jesus was in the Spirit. Say, my and my Father are what? One. I don't do anything except the Father's words say so. But there is no record that Jesus spoke in tongues. Not one. Maybe he did on the man thing. That is just us being trying to be clever by half. But we know that the speaking in tongues, as we see it in the New Testament, is something that Jesus wants to share with us, something Jesus wants to talk to us. There is no way he would have been speaking in tongues, and I'm saying this with a high level of confidence, but I'm not being absolute. Right? That if Jesus was speaking in tongues in Gethsemane on his own, that Jesus was always separating himself to go and speak in tongues in corner, but when he now comes to them, when he's praying, Holy Spirit will understand him. I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> At the very least, Jesus will have told the apostles there is something I used to do. It's called speaking in tongues. At the very least, he will have said, you can't do it now, but I'm doing it. Later on, you'll be able to do it. But he didn't even mention it. Jesus did not mention tongues once. So does that mean they were not in the Spirit? Does that mean he was not in the Spirit? No! Look at something. Ephesians chapter 5. Funny enough, there is only one place where Apostle Paul uses speaking in tongues and speaking in the Spirit in the same context. Only once. And that's the once that we have used to say is the entire praying in the Spirit. Every other time when 
praying in the spirit was talked about, tongues was not mentioned. So tongues, praying, praying in tongues can be a way of praying in the spirit. Listen to me. I hope you understand what I'm saying to you. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit. Spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So praying in the spirit is in the heart. It is the heart participating in or walking in step with or being in line with the Spirit. Being in line with the Word of God, with the things of God, with the values of God, with the things of the Word of God. That's why it says, that's why it says in Galatians chapter 5, that see, though that we're in the Spirit, we must walk according to the Spirit. So, the Spirit talks about all the things that are of God. Walking in the Spirit does not mean you're walking like this. Obviously not. It means that in your conduct, your conduct is in line with the Spirit. Do you understand that? So, when your heart is in line with the Spirit, you are doing things spiritually. Look, at go to chapter 6, verse 18. The same Ephesians chapter 6. And pray in this, look at verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. See the part that will offer you. With all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind be alert always keep on praying for the lord's people so you pray in the spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests praying in your understanding is a kind of prayer you hear what i just said to you now intercession in your understanding is a kind of prayer in the spirit so no Speaking in tongues is not the only way to speak in the Spirit. In fact, there is counterfeit glossolalia. Do you know what counterfeit glossolalia is? Counterfeit glossolalia is when a person is speaking ecstatically but not by the Spirit of God. That is what you see people in the world doing that I was explaining to you guys some weeks ago. Someone can be in a Michael Jackson concert and under the influence of drugs, hard drugs, begins to say, blah, 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 blah. That's what Ifar priestesses and Greek priestesses of Dionysius and all those people, under that spirit, that's what they do. In fact, in fact, a person who is mind and his consciousness is not with God can be creating gospelia with their mouth, but not by the spirit. That's what I'm saying to you. That's what I said to you. That is why this idea of I can just be making sounds with my mouth, and this is the reason why we also feel like when we are speaking in tongues, we have become so familiar with speaking in tongues that we have taken it for granted and it's making us ineffective. That's the spirit behind thinking that you can compel people to speak with tongues, that is to do glossolalia for many hours, and you say for those many hours they are praying in the spirit. Listen to me. If someone is pacing the ground for six hours, and for that six hours he's thinking about food, thinking about his girlfriend, thinking about the Netflix show he's going to watch, thinking about how his back is paining him, how he's tired, how he's not he's tired of all these things that are going on, and all those things and all those things. For you are not in the spirit. 
I get what I'm saying. That's what makes people feel like what they're saying is gibberish. They've gotten so used to that kind of prayer that when a believer, their mind is, they are in the spirit, their heart and their consciousness is on God, and they speak from that, they assume that what is coming out of them is the same as what they do when they're just sitting and saying, you know that thing that we do now. Say, let's speak in tongues now, everybody. There's a lot of dishonor for tongues going on around. Church, all together. Jude chapter 2. Jude 20, Jerry. I said Jude chapter 2. Jude 20. But you, dear friends, by building up yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Ghost, you keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ bring, to bring you to eternal life. So, speaking in tongues and praying in the Spirit is not just tongues. It is, if you read everywhere these things I've mentioned, it talks about a certain posture of the heart of the believer. It's about the posture of the heart of the believer where the God and the Holy Ghost is present on their minds. Now, this is what Romans chapter 8 is talking about. Verse 26. It says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know. See, oh, do you see that? We do not know knowledge in the hearts, what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That means groanings that cannot be what uttered. So the Holy Spirit is doing something with our minds that does not know. And what it is doing is a communication that is not communicated externally. So if speaking in tongues is an utterance, that excludes it from being the definition of praying in the Spirit. Do you understand that? God, help me. I pray today that God help me to teach this thing well. I'll get better over time in communicating it well. God will help me. The Holy Spirit helps us with wordless groans. That means words that cannot be uttered. But when we pray in tongues, we are uttering something. Mysteries. Is it not? Is it not? Therefore, your utterances when you are praying in tongues, right, by itself, is not what is describing here. That means there is something else that goes on that cannot be spoken out, that happens in inside of a man, that will lead to the utterances. So, that thing that happens inside of a man is the praying in the spirit. And so, that thing that happens inside of a man can exclude praying in tongues. You can do it inside of you and then pray with your understanding. You can do it inside of you and sing a spiritual song. You can do it inside of you and even be quiet. You can do it inside of you and what you have are just pure emotionalistic responses on your outside and you're not uttering a word. Such as groaning, actual groaning. When you say groanings cannot, cannot be uttered, don't people think that it means you're supposed to do... Mm, mm, mm. No, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. That's not what Apostle Paul is describing. He's describing something else. He's describing the passion and the favor which the Holy Spirit is working inside of us. But you can actually be like this. And you're like... 
You can't talk. And you are praying in the spirit. You understand that? So, that praying in the spirit is something that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. And what is that? It's simple. It's a function of the will. Your consciousness enters. Your consciousness, you know, takes partnership of the Holy Ghost. Your consciousness takes partnership with the Holy Ghost. One of the manifestations of it, 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 it feels like it's a focus of meditation, focusing, you know, speaking to yourself, speaking God's word on your inside. Meditating on God's word on your inside, ruminating over God's word, and participating in the Holy Ghost. Church, all together. Verse 27 now says, And he who search our hearts, do you see that? He who search our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So he that searches our what? Heart. Praying in the Spirit is in the inner man. It is not the glossolalia. However, when you are praying in the Spirit, you can decide to bring it out, you understand, as glossolalia. You can decide to bring it out as the understanding. You can decide to bring it out as songs and melodies. You can decide. It is in your heart. Church out together. Let's finish First Corinthians chapter fourteen before I now do. I now do um, an overview. Verse thirteen. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue shall pray that may, shall pray that they may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my spirit is what unfruitful. Paul is assuming that every time we are praying in tongues, that we are doing it from the Spirit and we are not doing it absent-mindedly. Because of honor, reverence, and value for these great gifts that God has given us. What shall I do? So this is an advice on conduct. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. Do you see that? Then I will pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my what? Understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how, how can someone else who is now put in the position of the choir say amen to your thanksgiving? Since they do not know what you are saying, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is what? Edified. So you see that? He said you are doing it well. So your utterances in your glossolalia is something, you are saying something well. It's not gibberish. I, if I don't achieve anything, you must expunge that thing from your mind. When you close your eyes and you are praying to God and words come out of your mouth, you don't say those words come, you don't think in your mind that those words coming out of your mouth are meaningless. You are saying something. It's just that what you are saying, people around you might not understand. Look at the people in Acts chapter 2 when they were speaking, they did not understand what they were saying. But people from all over the world understood what they were saying. So you don't see you are speaking gibberish. You don't think in your mind that you are speaking gibberish. Verse, 20, verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because if you are speaking mysteries to people and they don't understand, you are not blessing them. But we are, our entire Christian conduct is, um, is undergirded by love. Isn't it? So, that love is the driving force by which we conduct ourselves in the garden of the saints. And that is the reason why our primary insistence is that each and every one of you 
when you are gathered in the church, you try to bless one another. Church out together. So your speaking in tongues must only be to the measure to which it is for yourself. When you are gathered together, you cannot come and be using it to for other people. The picture of Paul is painting for us here is a church where people probably began to sit down and will speak in tongues throughout the service. And then nothing is being said and everybody that is coming is looking like, what's happening? Imagine me coming up now and because I have the gift of speaking in tongues, I close my eyes and I say, it could be for two hours. One thing you must never misunderstand about this scripture is that Apostle Paul is not saying you should not speak in tongues. He's saying you should not speak in tongues in public or in church. Let me say that. In the garden of the saints. When it is time to minister to people, you don't minister in tongues to people. That is what he's saying. He's not saying you should not speak in tongues or speaking in tongues is somehow um, a gift that you should not want to have. Which together. Verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be, order, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to these people, but even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, let's open Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, that um, Apostle Paul is quoting. And this is where I will use to rest my case concerning the um, matter of glossolalia versus xenolalia. Verse 11 says, Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues or strange languages, God will speak to these people. So, when God himself prophesied through Isaiah, he did not say, through um, gibberish. He said, through what? Foreign lips. And what? Strange languages. So, your tongues has meaning. Are we in agreement? Let's go back. First Corinthians 14. Verse 22. Tongues then. This is another thing you should keep in mind for where I'm going now. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. You see that? Tongues is a sign to unbelievers. It's a sign. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not see you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought to that judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, explaining God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, Everything must be done so that the church may be what? Built up. Now, let me explain something. Church, are we together? We've seen the overview, right? Now, keep this entire scripture in your mind as I begin to explain something. Now, 
So there's a man called Husserl, and he's, uh, he was, he's a philosopher of language, and he did a lot of work in the 20th century. And in fact, his work is seminal to all what you know, philosophy of languages began to build on. Even people like Derrida, their whole work was entirely was about critiquing what he did. And this is what he said. And this is what he explained. He said, when we're talking about language, there's some, there are things called indicators. And what does, that, what does an indicator mean? An indicator is something that is representative of something that is not there. So when you see that thing, that thing tells you that there is something, it, it means something. It stands or represents something that is not physically there. Do you understand that? That's what an indicator is. For example, when you see smoke in the distance, you know that there must be fire. So smoke is an indicator of fire. Now, when you say an indicator, it does not necessarily mean, it may or may not mean that someone puts that in, that the person that brought out the indicator meant to communicate an information. It doesn't mean the person had an intention of communicating an information, of, of communicating information. What it just means is that that thing stands for something. So you, when you see that indicator, when you see that sign, this is serious semiotic stuff. When you see that sign, you know that that sign is supposed to mean something. For example, if you see tire tracks on the floor, you know that a car has passed there. The person that drove the car was not trying to tell you something that my car passed here. He's not trying to tell you anything. You are the one that will see the tire tracks and you will say, this tire tracks is a sign for something. Do you understand that? So indicators do not have intention. They are just signs that, that represent something that is not physically there. In fact, even our bodily gestures, there are times when we manifest bodily gestures that we did not intend to communicate something. Those bodily gestures are signs. When someone sees that gesture, they can know what is happening inside of you even though you were not trying to communicate something. Do you understand? For example, you can be reading your book now, and you just see someone is watching you, and the person can tell from your facial manifestation that, ah, that book is reading. Something interesting has happened. You are not talking to the person. You are not communicating to the person. You just, your body just manifested an indicator, and you interpreted that indicator. Do you understand that? We're talking about phenomenology now. Then there's something called, there are some things called expression. Expression is now when a person has an intention of communicating some information. And what the person now does is that the person brings together plenty indicators with intention of using those different indicators to communicate information. So basically, this is where speech happens. This is where complex gestures happen. For example, complex gestures, right? We are in a meeting now, right? And um, we're in a meeting now, and the person that is talking is talking for too long. And I begin to look at my phone, and I'm doing like this. Deliberately. And I'm doing it deliberately. I am expressing something. And I'm expressing what? Um, my lack of patience. Do you understand? I'm expressing my boredom. I'm expressing that I want to leave that place. So it is the same thing where we do when we have languages. right? Languages and words are basically expressions to communicate something that is not there. So the speaker has something inside of them. Then they put together plenty complex indicators to communicate what is inside them. So that is what expression is. Expression is like a full range of indicators being used to manifest something that is not there. So when I'm expressing something, the expression is representing something that cannot be seen. That's the entire essence of language. So that when I'm telling you about speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues is not here, but you are getting the information of what I'm saying. So it is expressing what is not seen. 
if I talk about my wife to you, my wife is not here, but the words I'm using are indicating my wife who is somewhere else. So expressions are, you know, complex indicators put together to express something that is not there. Do you understand that? But then there's another level of something called pure expression. Pure expression is that point where you don't need to use indicators to communicate something because the thing that is being communicated is there. The example that we have for pure expression is when a person is talking to themselves inside. Your, the thing you are thinking of is in your mind, but you are talking to yourself. So you don't need to use words because what you are talking about is there. Do you understand what I'm saying to you now? Pure expression is when the thing that you are talking about is where is inside, right where you are. So, because indicators and expressions are supposed to be communicating something that is not physically there, it does not count as, as expression. What it counts as is pure expression. Because there's no need for an indicator. Because the thing that you are um, communicating about is right there. So it's like the thing that you are communicating about is there communicating by itself. So when a person is meditating, for example, if I'm thinking about my wife, I'm communicating to myself. But what I'm thinking about is in my heart. My wife is in my heart. I'm thinking about her in my heart. But I'm not using words to talk to myself. Do you understand that? That is what? Pure expression. This is the shocking thing. That, um, so this is, this, is this, this thing I just summarized now. You can imagine if it is written in a book and more, made more complicated and all that. So I've just used, Holy Spirit has helped me to dial it down as much as I can for you. Now, this is the funny thing. So whenever you want to do analytics of all languages and what languages do and everything, everything usually falls into this, you know, bandwagon of the structure of languages. This is the funny thing. For so long, people have told us that when we are speaking in tongues, that what we are doing is that we are speaking Gibbish, and even we ourselves, we think what we are doing is nonsense. And, like I was saying, we do not understand Paul. Guess what tongues is? From these three things I just discovered, I just described. Where is tongues? Where do you think tongues is? Hmm. Tongues is all three. Tongues is all three. That's why tongues is something that we must, we must take it with our chest as a gift. It is all three. It is Holy Spirit entering the philosophy of language and scratching everything and showing that he's the one that created language. Tongues is all three. At the very least, at the very least, tongues is an indicator. Do you know why? Like, it's, like we just read in um, um, First Corinthians 22. At the very least, even when you are speaking under ecstatic distance and the person does not understand what you are saying, and the person thinks what you are saying is glossolalia, if the person cannot understand what you are saying, at the very least, what you are doing is an indicator to the person. The person can see you speaking in tongues and know that you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I just said now? Just like smoke is an indicator that there is fire somewhere. At the very least... When a person is speaking in tongues under the Holy Spirit, it communicates to unbelievers and even to believers that the Spirit of God is doing something here. That's why in Acts chapter 22, they be, when they, the moment they began to speak, it communicated that something is going on in that place. 
That's why we see through the book of, that's why we see all through the scriptures from Acts chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 19, that the apostles always say something. When they go and lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that they will not speak in tongues. If I got to the point in Acts chapter 19, Apostle Paul asked them that, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? He said they've not received because they've not been taught, they've taught the baptism of John. He now said that they received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. Do you know why? Because speaking in tongues is an indicator that a man has the Holy Spirit. So if tongues has no other use, the fact that it is a badge, it is a smoke demonstrating a fire that the Spirit of God inside of you it is doing something. Do you hear what I just said to you now? Tongues is not something that we take for granted. It is actually God's wisdom. That's one. Number two, tongues is also expression. There is no other language or philosophy of language that can fit into all three. Praying in the Spirit is also what? Expression. Do you know why? Because like I said to you, what you utter is something. What you utter has meaning. And that's why some people can interpret it. So, you can speak ecstatically under the influence of the Holy Spirit and what you are saying is an expression. You are bringing together different words and indicators to mean something that someone will actually receive and understand what you are saying. Did you hear that? And number three, praying in the Spirit is also pure expression. Because at that point, your Spirit and the Holy Ghost do not have anything separating them, but they are communicating. Hey, but they are communicating. So they don't need spoken words to communicate and they are doing it within each other. Do you know that when Husserl wrote this part about pure expression, even he himself could not really describe and explain these pure expressions improperly and Derrida critiqued his work. He did not know that he was talking about something else. Whereby the spirit of God inside a man and the spirit of the man are communicating. So they don't need to use words, but they are communicating. So praying in the spirit and speaking in tongues it's not just a gift that God gave us that we, um, um, you know, we um, charismatics are using to deceive ourselves. It's actually something that is so philosophically sound that it is even superior to all what we have in every sense. Speaking in tongues is superior to any language. Because it's a language inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it meets all the criteria by which you can use to describe any language. What we have been playing with is something deep. That's why Apostle Paul described now... First Corinthians chapter 14 makes sense. That's why Apostle Paul in the same breath will say your spirit is praying, pure expression. But you are speaking mysteries and the interpreter can understand. Yet he says it is a sign for unbelievers. Do you see that? In one chapter, the guy finished philosophy of language, but we do not understand. In one chapter. What people are going to university to study, Apostle Paul finished it in one chapter. How a language can be pure expression, can be expression and an indicator all at once. He finished it in one chapter. Speaking in tongues is an indicator. It is a sign. Unbelievers see, they know something is going there. And even believers can see it and know this man has the spirit of God. It is an expression because if you have the ability to interpret what is being said, you can hear what the person is saying. And what the person is saying is what the spirit of God inside of them has communicated through those mysteries. And while they are doing that, they are doing it in the spirit because their spirit and their own, the spirit that searches the heart of a man. You know you don't know how to pray properly, but the spirit of God that knows the mind of God is interacting with your spirit and doing something on your inside. So you can pray in the spirit and then you will just communicate hymns and spiritual songs. We are doing all three when we pray in the spirit. Tell I just said to you now. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's some good stuff, is it not? 
So praying in the spirit is not something that we just take for granted. Praying in the spirit is not something that you just say, hey, believers are always doing mashaka, mashaka, mashaka. And even we take it for granted. Sometimes we dumb it down and think of it like a mere indicator. And we take it for granted to be something meaningless. You are saying, mashaka, puroko, let's just do it for six hours. And you're just doing it. No. It is something heavier than that. It's something that it took the Holy Spirit coming to reside inside of man for it to bust up in humanity for the first time. Let me bust your head now. So, this is the, you know, um, this is Husserl's philosophy of language, right? Okay, let me just do this in five minutes. Then there's something that Austin and Searle now did called the speech act theory. So this one is more recent. And speech act theory basically preaches that when you talk, your talking is an action. You're not just talking. Whenever you're talking, you're talking, you're, you're speaking is an action. When you're communicating, is an action. And it has three parts. There is the locutionary part of your speaking. Locutionary acts is when you speak. It's the act of speaking up. Do you understand? So when I say, um, um, Daniel, do the setup. What I have said is locution. I've spoken out. Do you understand? Then there's something called elocutionary. Elocutionary act is when I, what I'm saying, I intended to make it, I intended to do something by saying what I wanted to say. So that's the elocutionary part of what I'm saying. So when I say, Daniel, do the media setup, I have spoken. Daniel, do the media setup by itself. It's just the locution. Hmm? I have a purpose in mind. The purpose is for you to do the media setup. So the locutionary part of my speaking is for you to do what I've said, to follow the command. So that's the locutionary part. Then there's the prelocutionary act. That means what the effect that what I have said has on you. Prelocutionary part is the effect that what I have said has on you. This sounds like straightforward, like um, this is common sense, like right? This is the three parts of what are philosophers shouting about. This is common sense. But it's not common sense because... For example, if we're in a hostage situation and we are trying to kill the kidnapper, imagine a movie, but both of us, we have a, a common understanding based on the film we watched. We have an inside joke. And the inside joke is, when I, whenever I watch a cartoon, and maybe it's based on a comedy, and in the comedy, whenever you say, my friend, stop stomping your feet, it means slap the person behind you, beside you. You know it will not line up again. Because the locutionary act, I will say, like, so imagine we're in a hostage situation and we have an inside joke that whenever I say, oh, God, stop stomping your feet, it means somebody should slap somebody, right? Or somebody should hijack somebody. And then we're in that situation. Okay, let me use this joke. This one is good. I remember Uno Benga Deboe, the old Yoruba um, comedian. There's a common story that is a very funny story that he told when he was small. He said him and his friend, they went for dinner with some white people some time ago. And this is the story. This is where the story went. It's a joke. I don't know if it's real or not. So he said they set up the table before them. They set the dinner table up before them. And they were about to eat. And then he now said, let us, um, you know, let us close our eyes to pray. The, the, the white people now said, dear brother Benga, please lead us in prayer. Pray. <laughs> and then Benga now said, okay, let us all close our eyes to pray. And then he now noticed that his, his friend that followed him, Kasim, because he was on the table and he did not understand why they gave some people fork, some people spoon. He started changing the fork to the spoon because he wanted spoon so that he can eat the rice very well. And so he now said, please let us close our eyes, let us pray. And then he now closed his eyes. They now closed their eyes. He now said, Kasimu, 
Kasimu. So while they were closing their eyes, he was speaking Yoruba. And I said, permit me to speak in my mother tongue. The white people said, of course, of course, you can speak in your mother tongue. Do you guys know that story? Do you know that story? <laughs> so he now told the white people, permit me to speak in my mother tongue. And then the white people now said, please, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. He now said, Kasimu. Kasimu, Kasimu, Emelo Mokbeo. He said, Oh, no, only Jacob, that they do you see me in the bureau. Mokbeo, why be tea and one year? You want one yospoon, your fox, and I want sorry, no, Burubai. Sorry, no, Buru, King Tola Jumiko, Dago was part of the fox, but I In Jesus' name, we have prayed. Amen. You see, problem there now. What is the locution? The locution is that he has uttered Yoruba. His elocution was the intention of correcting. The guy that's with him to return the forks and the spoons back to where they were. But the white people, when they are receiving the elocution, what they are receiving is that they think that, sorry, so, sorry, two things. The guy's locution is the Yoruba language. The elocution is the intention, he's, he's doing two things with one, with one locution. Two things. With one locution, he's making white people think that he's praying while he's telling the Yoruba guy to return the forks and the spoons. And with one locution, he's doing two perlocutions. The effect is that the white people said, Amen, and they thought they are prayed to God. Meanwhile, the guy he was speaking to has returned the forks and the spoons back to their place. <laughs> Do you see that? That's another part of That's what they call speech act theory. Guess what? Speaking in tongues is an amazing gift for all three. For all three. When you speak with tongues, even, what you, even if what you are saying, you don't understand it. Even if what you are saying, you don't understand it. You are doing a locution. Do you understand that? You have an intention behind that locution. That's your elocution. Now, what is the intention? You are praying to God. Maybe you have a request or you are interceding for someone, you know, and you are doing that and everything. Guess what? The prolocution, that is the effect of what you are saying on different people can be unvarying. The effect, you can speak in tongues. Have you noticed, have you ever been in a place where a person begins to speak in tongues and the effect of it is that you begin to feel the presence of God? That is prelocution. That is prelocution. Imagine you're now in that same meeting and another person can actually interpret what you have said. The person interprets what you have said and communicates it to that gathering of the, of, of the saints. The effect on the people there would be another massive prolocution. So with speaking in tongues, you can achieve so much in the people that you're talking to. Guess what? You can even do prolocution. The prolocution of your tongues can even have an effect on your own self. On your own self. So, there is no way to look at this philosophy of, philosophy of language that speaking in tongues is just that we don't have time to think about it properly. There's no way to look at this philosophy of language that speaking in tongues will be looked at as one crazy thing that, white, that some people do, that some charismatic people do. It is not. It is deeper than that. It is the gift of God to us to be effective. This is the reason why it seems, and we'll talk about this beginning from next Sunday. This is the reason why it seems like Speaking in tongues is a key that unlocks so many things in our Christian effectiveness. Do you understand what I just said to you? It's like as if it is a key that unlocks so many things in our Christian effectiveness. Because there is no way to look at it. It is language supernaturally inspired for, by God for us. 
to receive so much blessing through it. So speaking in tongues is not something that you shy away from. Speaking in tongues is not something that you take for granted. Speaking in tongues is not something that you look down on. Speaking in tongues is not something that you just think they are just doing something. That's why Apostle Paul now says that he that speaks in tongues edifies himself. That's where he's coming from. He has looked at this thing and all the things that it, you know, that all the things that speaking in tongues does. This pure expression, the spirit of God inside of you, communicating with your spirit. So that the weaknesses of your own heart, the weaknesses of your own inner man, the, the inability of your own inner man to communicate some things, to understand some things, or to foresee some things, can be breathed by the help of the Holy Ghost. Praying in tongues is not something you pray with. Praying in spirit is not something you pray with. That is why it's like a correlation. Let me tell you the truth. Should I bust your head? I'm going to say this now. If you look at the average American evangelical that does not speak in tongues, and you look at the way many um, Pentecostal charismatics are now, in terms of beliefs and all that, they believe many of the same things. Why do you think that all the other guys, with their depth of knowledge, with their depth of understanding of theology and everything, with all the things that they've done, it seems like as if their rate of getting people saved is very slow. But these guys, 1906, showed up in Azusa and speaking in tongues was the central part of that meeting. The central issue in that meeting was speaking in tongues. Do you know that? And within 100 years, they've turned the whole world around. There's something about tongues. Why did it not happen before Jesus died? Why did it happen after? Even if it was true that not everybody is meant to speak in tongues. If they tell you that there's something that Elijah, Abraham, and Cody not do, that you can do, if you are someone that is in the right frame of mind, shouldn't you be asking that you people should give me two now? You hear what I just said now? Should your response be, um, no, 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 no. They tell you that there's something that you can do that the guys of old could not do. Shouldn't you? Your honest response as a child of God be, how are they doing it? I want to be able to do it too. Speaking in tongues is not that thing that charismatics do that makes them look like silly people. Ha! Speaking in tongues is more than that. It is a gift of God to us that unlocks things in us. There is a reason. It is not a causation, but there is a correlation between these things. Miracles and signs and wonders. I was reading the book of, um, oh my God. I was reading the book of um, um, T.L. Osworth, um, Christ our healer. There is a reason why this guy showed up and within 50 years, they were healing the sick, casting out demons, doing all kinds of crazy things. Why we are still seeing it now. You yourself, if you are someone that actually speaks in tongues, not that one where you are not absent-minded, you will know how the thing has an effect on you. Why do you think that is so? Tell you what I'm saying to you. If there is anything that all believers should desire to do, it should speak in tongues. And if there is anything that a charismatic should be proud of, it is the ability to speak with tongues. Church out together. Let's stop here. We'll continue next Wednesday. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, Follow us on Twitter 
Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.